0: Listening to Rattle and Pedal: Diversion Thoughts on Marketing and Growing Professional Services Firms. Your hosts are Jason Maliky and Jeff McKay.
1: All right, Jeff, we're going to talk about the channel today. So does I it mean we're talking about USA Networks, TNT? What are we What are we talking about here?
2: Oh gosh, another brilliant intro. We're talking about the channel with all. Oh, With one of the smartest? ESPN. Yeah, yes, yes. (laughs) One of the smartest men I know, Brendan Sullivan. Brendan is on the podcast with us because he is wicked smart. He is one of those people that I try to have lunch with multiple times a year. I buy and I just shut up and listen to him talk. It charges my batteries and I walk away a lot smarter.
1: So in reality, Brendan is underlying, you know, the first 123 episodes of this podcast. He just doesn't even know it.
2: Oh gosh! In <laughs> every blog post I've ever written. <laughs> anyway, welcome, Brendan. Why don't you introduce yourself?
3: I believe I'm Brendan Sullivan, a Chicago guy, based in Evanston, Illinois, working for a company called Coastal Cloud, founded in Palm Coast. So just a little bit of professional background. I've spent 20 years in sales and marketing leadership for business and business technology companies. Started in Chicago at a classic. Chicago, Stalwart, CDW. Spent about 13 years there and then spent 10 years running portfolio companies for an Irish private equity firm all in kind of executive level operating roles in sales and marketing. So grew all of those companies on the platform of salesforce.com, raised over $100 million in growth capital for five portfolio companies over 10 years, brought one company public, and it was all done on the platform of Salesforce. And along the way, I met this company called Coastal Cloud that was actually one of my implementation partners for Salesforce at these portfolio companies. And the founders, Sarah and Tim, I became very close to, and they kept saying, there's got to be a way that you can do for our clients what you've been doing for these portfolio companies. So at the end of 2018, I was rolling off a project for the Irish private equity firm. I actually joined as managing director, and we've been enjoying some really great success and growth over the last three years.
2: So, Jason, there's two things about Brendan that are really important. One that I absolutely love about him and one not so much. The first one is he is an avid cyclist, as is his son cycling around in Europe.
1: Well, of note, he also, maybe at the end of this, for what, eight years, you ran a bike chain, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. Or owned
1: a bike chain or something. So I think that might be interesting to talk about at the end of the podcast.
2: Which leads us to... The second thing that I don't like about him so much, and we'll keep people in suspense, but who his partner was in that initiative is important. And I'll explain why I don't care for this part of his life when we get to it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you didn't realize you're going to be personally critiqued today, Brandon. I did, did not. You? I did not. I was <laughs> that wasn't really part of the enough. deal when you signed up. All right. So Coastal Cloud is a Salesforce implementation partner. Mm-hmm. But, but you also work with lots of other ancillary software companies that are either, you know, inside of the, the force.com platform or, or Salesforce universe. So mm-hmm. what's a channel? What does it mean to be a channel partner? I, I think it's just with level set that real fast, you know, mm-hmm. you know versus just, I don't know, working with HubSpot or something. What's it mean to be a channel partner?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, for me, being a channel partner is kind of rooted in my academic background in economics, Right. Being a channel partner is really just the representation of a simple trade. You have a company like Salesforce that's trying to go ahead and scale and capture market across everything that their platform touches. And they need to go ahead and find folks like Coastal Cloud that can implement their software and reach the market in a way that they didn't want to or the economics don't make sense for them to build on their own. So they go ahead and create channel relationships with folks like Coastal Cloud to say, I need to engage with you in a simple trade. Right. Back to the whole, you know, optimization of gains from trade that you learned back in college and comparative advantage and all the economic models. Real simple concept, like the old model of I have bread, you have wine, let's make a trade. I mean, companies like Salesforce have to look at it and say, like, we want to go ahead and grow. And are we better off building a function within our own four walls or going to the market and buying that function? And the decision of whether or not they do that, just as classic kind of like decision tree of whether or not it makes sense for them to do that, right? Can someone like Coastal Cloud attain economies of scale faster than they could in-house? Do we possess execution capabilities that, you know, Coastal Cloud would struggle, that uh, Salesforce would struggle in building themselves? Are there significant relationship assets that we have that we could go ahead and leverage or their coordination problems that Salesforce has in the market. So when they get through that whole thing, they said, you know, looks like we need to do a trade. Let's go ahead and find a channel partner that we can go ahead and bring on to our kind of go-to-market strategy where we'll build the software you guys implement the software.
1: Got it. All right. That was such a eloquent explanation of the channel that I don't want to just like jump right past and say like, oh, let's just move on. Like I, it really was. It was a really helpful way to describe. And I, and I love the build or buy. We build it, you implement it. Like, I love that kind of like utter simplicity that, that you're giving to it. So so my question was, let's was, was talk about the goods and the bads. What's the best part about the channel? What's the worst thing about the channel? It's kind of like talk about, and I don't know what perspective, Jeff, you want to go on that, you know, from, from the perspective of the channel partner or from the perspective of the channel developer?
2: <laughs> I, Salesforce, I, well, I think, it's, I think it's important, you know, from a strategic perspective to understand both because, you know, what? Brendan just described is a strategic choice, and it really is, you know, approach to offload risk, create scalability, and, you know, there's, I think, a trade-off between variable and, and fixed costs associated with a channel partner structure, and as a result of that structure, there are good things to channel partners, and there are bad things that exist. And I think a lot of people sign up for these channel partner relationships without really thinking through what's involved in a channel partner relationship and what it takes to really grow and be successful, which is where we'll get right after you, you answer this question, Brendan, about what's good, what's bad from your perspective, having been in the channel as channel partner and customer of channel partners.
3: The best part about the channel is when the pie grows right? Mm -hmm. That when you can go ahead and create such value for the partner that you're trying to support and bring to market, that you can grow their pie. You can extend kind of what they're doing. When the expectations that they have for you are very clear, when there's a lot of accountability between the kind of provider and the partner that's delivering kind of that channel relationship and that execution, the best part about it is when the pie grows, right? Well, then that's easy to answer what the worst part about it. The worst part about it is when the partner and the provider are wrestling through the entire relationship over to how to get a bigger slice of the pie, right? Where they're not creating win-win outcomes, expectations aren't clear, you know, just a lot of lack of accountability in the relationship. And that's the worst part, right? But the best part is absolutely when the pie grows.
1: I'm super curious now. So in your experience are there more technology companies that are on the good side where they have clear expectations and their intent is to grow the pie together, or are there more that are maybe on the bad side? Like what have you encountered in your experience?
3: Yeah, I think it's, it's probably a mix. You know, I think that there's a lot of you're looking at it and you're saying, okay, we're a provider that wants to go ahead and bring our product to market. Do we go ahead and build our sales force? Do we build our implementation and pro services team to reach the market? Or do we go out to the partner and try it? Folks that are foolhardy, that don't design good programs, that don't clearly communicate expectations, and it just looks like an easier path. Those are where the failures happen. And there's a lot of them in the market, right? But there's really other serious players like Salesforce that say, we win when the people who buy our software are happy. We win when the value that we create for the client is realized. And it's not realized just because of the code that's behind it. It's realized because the channel partners that we've selected are intimately understanding the business processes of these companies whether they're public sector, non-for-profit, or commercial public you know entities, and are really saying, how can we use the software to create efficiencies around those business processes so those companies can grow faster, do more, achieve better results, drive down costs to go ahead and do that. So what's the mix? Are there more places where the pie grows or where the pie is being fought over for the slice? I, I think it's mixed, right? And where you go ahead and see the pie grow is where there's, like I said, you know, just a clear understanding of what the providers wanting the channel partner to accomplish.
1: You know, it's interesting, as you were talking, I I think about all my interactions with Salesforce, and I've been a a Salesforce user for 15 years, 2007, Mm -hmm. 2008, and all the interactions I've had with firms and people around it. And what I find interesting is more often than not, when you ask somebody what they think of Salesforce, they have somewhat of a negative connotation with the the product itself. Like they're, they're frustrated with the user interface, they're frustrated with something about it, it's clunky, it's difficult to use. What struck me in, in your comments was through it all, Salesforce has grown at an unbelievable clip. They, they, they've created their own economy around them. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that success has been largely driven by what you just said, clear expectations with channel partners and building a, a, an ecosystem of, of people that are enabling others to be successful. And yeah. so it just it just struck me as that. It may not be That may not be true at all, but just that jumped out to me. Your comments seemed like they were prophetic without intending to be.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's a fair point, Jason. I mean, one way to think about it is, you know, back to your question where you say, are there more of these failed relationships or more of these successful relationships in the market? And when you look at Salesforce specifically, you know, they have a big portfolio of partners. Right. They've got, I don't know what the count is, but over a thousand global implementation partners. And there's some folks that just kind of are lifestyle businesses that never really grow, but they have a good customer base and they're probably creating value for their clients, but there's not a lot of. And then there's companies like Coastal Cloud that really embraced the cause of Salesforce, been thoughtful in how we position ourselves to differentiate ourselves in the market, and start to capture share faster than Salesforce is growing. So taking a company that's able to go ahead and grow 3x over thirty six last 36 months, um, that's really an expression to say like, you know, those are the winners and that's how the winning is, you know, quantified, is outpacing the growth of the mothership.
1: All right, Jeff. So here's the question that I know you want to ask. So how in the world did you do that? <laughs> how we built this, right? Let's talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> 3X 36 months. So that's 300% growth in three years. So let's talk about that. Open that up a little bit if you can.
3: Yeah. I mean, for, for us, it's kind of rooted in, in targeting. We actually took on private equity investment for the first time back in 2020 and having been a person who's raised a lot of growth capital for portfolio companies for private equity backed businesses what was interesting about the investment from my perspective is there's always a thesis there's always kind of a kind of a basic belief as to why the company is going to use the scarce capital that they have to go ahead and give it to this other company to go ahead and help fuel the growth. And in the case of the private equity investors that we brought on back in 2020, the fundamental principle behind their investment was they believe that Coastal Cloud will be the dominant player in the mid-commercial space. Companies that have enterprise needs, but don't have enterprise resources. And they believed and were so of the belief that they were willing to put their scarce capital to work you know, at our company by making an investment in us. And so when they went ahead and invested, the belief was that these companies in the mid-commercial space can't go to the big four and deal with the fee fatigue up there. And they can't go down like, you know, Bob's Consulting and Bait Shop, right? (laughs) They're wanting to use this technology as a weapon to compete in the market. And they needed a serious provider that understood their businesses, understood their needs, and could provide kind of that and a big four experience, but really suited to that mid-commercial space. So when you say 3X in 36 months, how do you achieve that? I think part of it is rooted in you know, targeting and differentiation of what Coastal Cloud has in the market. But I'd be foolish to su- suggest it was one thing, right? You know, Coastal Cloud success is a very elaborate, multivariable equation, right? It's about having the right culture. It's about having the right values. It's about having a commitment to people. It's about targeting, right? So there's this really complicated, multivariable equation that runs behind us. We live by something we call clients for life. Clients, the number four, and then life. That's kind of a hashtag. If you put it out on the internet, you'd find a lot of references to Coastal Cloud. And we're not a professional services firm that is interested in like finding a client with a project, delivering the project, giving them the binder, and then walking off into the sunset. We actually measure our success with clients over something we call vintage. So we look at what we acquired from the client in terms of revenue in year one, and then we measure it over two, And three, four, five. And we're creating a pro services firm that looks a whole heck of a lot more like a recurring revenue model because our commitment and focus on the mid-commercial space and the success of those organizations using the Salesforce platform to create value in that mid-commercial space. So that's kind of how you get you know 3x results over 36 months.
2: Brendan, has all that been organic?
3: It's been exclusively organic. So Michael Tracy would take great exception to our growth.
1: Right? So <laughs> yes, you would.
3: Double-digit growth. He was asked, you know, should the growth come? If you want to grow at double digits, should you do it organically or through acquisition? And his answer is yes, right? But all of our growth over the last 36 months has been um, organic.
2: What do the best ch- channel partners do that others can't or won't? You've already talked, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's this tyranny of choice, right? Mm-hmm. And in my experience with clients, what they refuse to do is to pick a market, a niche. You use the best expression for it that I've heard, this multivariant selection of a market. I love the way you articulate that because in in my consulting work, I see the exact same thing, the most successful take that combination of things into account and they come out with the ideal client that Mm -hmm. matches their capabilities, matches their culture, and the ultimate value that they provide. I think that's critical. But what else is it that the most successful channel partners do that others won't or can't or just simply choose not to do?
3: Yeah, it's probably don't right? Mm -hmm. What are the most successful channel partners do that the others don't? You know, from my perspective, there's a saying that I kind of follow in business, and that is that the value you create in the market is directly correlated to the demand that are placed on your services. When the provider is coming to the channel partner with a new opportunity all the time, it's because they know that quality of execution, the ownership of accountability, the understanding and delivery on expectations is something the channel partner does. So the provider keeps bringing them more stuff. <laughs> we have another idea for a market segment. We have another idea for a product. We have another idea for a promotion or a marketing event. And we want that channel partner that does those things to do it. So for me, what makes a channel partner successful versus ones that aren't? The ones that aren't don't get that, mm-hmm. Right. And they're again back to this idea of the pie where they're trying to get their big slice of it at the expense of the service provider. The value they're creating is eroded. So they get less opportunities coming from the service provider that says, I got another idea. You know, we're really segmenting out our manufacturing even deeper to four verticals, and we want you guys to be a part of it because of what you've demonstrated in the past. So you get brought along to the next big win, right? So the wins just start to parlay on themselves because, you know, you're creating value in the market and the demand that are coming for your services and channel partners keep growing.
2: It really is so simple and straightforward. I mean, when you put yourself into the shoes of you know the software provider, they want leads, they want happy customers, and they want customers who are expanding the relationship with the software provider, i.e. Mm-hmm. moving into other modules that they offer. It's so straightforward. <laughs> you know, going back to your your basic economics kickoff, it's hard to understand if you're rational, why you can't find a path through that.
3: Right. Well, I mean, it's just, I mean, back, back to the economic models, right? There's lots of distortions that happen in the market. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's lots of times where, you know, the provider thinks they can take advantage of the channel partner. There's other times where the channel partner thinks that they can go ahead and get more from the service provider or deserve more. They feel kind of like, you know, that they're owed something because they're a critical path to market. And the second you start going down those paths, either on the provider side or the channel side, the relationship just erodes. So again, back to this idea of gain some trade, you know, you look at the guy who's making the bread and I got the wine and you're saying like, he's wanting more from my side than he's given me from his side, right? And so really just getting that balance is critical.
0: You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff.
1: Jeff, you've kind of got when you when we talked about this before the call, you kind of framed this out. So, so how do you measure success? So, 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 as a channel partner, how do you determine if you're successful? What do, what do you look at? Yeah. What do you think about?
3: It's kind of interesting. The most critical thing that we look at at Coastal Cloud is is customer success, right? So, the outcomes that we drive and the way that our clients express a positive experience with those outcomes is probably the most critical thing. It's not like a leading indicator, like how efficient we are, or what our cost model is, or how we're pricing things in the market. Those are all important, you have to do those things. But the critical thing for us is at the end, measuring kind of like, are the clients feeling like we truly are living what we believe, which is we believe that with our work, we're improving business and improving lives. And it's a simple concept, but it's, you know, more than just kind of words on a page we're improving the business of our clients, the lives of the people that are having to use these business systems to create gains for their own organizations, we're improving the lives of the co-workers that work for us by giving them really challenging, great growth and learning experiences, you know, winning economically, you know, through their employment relationship with us and growing in their careers, right? So, for me it really it goes back to this idea of like, you know, the improvement that you're making, how do you measure that success? Measure it by the ultimate outcome, right? Is your turnover at single digits and are your CSAT scores among the highest of the partners globally for the Salesforce platform? If the answer is yes, you're winning. So are
2: you saying that Coastal Clouds, in addition to being 3X, which is a rapid pace to grow and recruit and train and enculturate? Enculturate? In, 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 no, it's not. <laughs> I
1: like it though. I like it. It's kind of like ingratiate, <laughs> but enculturate. It's like we've brought you. We've brought you into uh, the mothership where you're going to be turned into a stormtrooper clone. And right and keep going. Sorry, I like it. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. But the I coastal it. cloud
2: work. is leading in client satisfaction and has single digit retention rates of its employees. Yeah,
3: absolutely. Yeah, globally, if you go out to the App Exchange, I think you mean turnover
2: and, rates, right? Yeah.
3: They're, oh, they're, what did I say, really man? <laughs>
2: hey, we, <laughs> we, we're going beyond twenty minutes, and I'm losing my mind.
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: Anyway, sorry, Brendan, I cut you off. Keep going. No, Jeff,
3: that. you're you're absolutely correct. If you look at and again, go to the market to gauge whether or not, like a model like Coastal Clouds is winning. Don't listen to me, right? Go out to the market that Salesforce has created for these CSAT reviews and App Exchange. And look at the profile and presence that Coastal Cloud has in the market, with, like I said, most numerous and some of the highest CSAT scores of any provider that they have globally, right? Go to places and markets for this sort of information like G2 and look and see how many reviews and what the profile is of coastal cloud in those markets for kind of the voice of the customer and the voice of the CSAT. And again, Coastal Cloud leads there. And then look at the coworkers, right? In professional services firm that hemorrhage 30, 35% a year. And look at a company like Coastal Club, its retention is in the single digits, right? And something that we're always focused on, focused on improving. I
1: I have a very practical, tactical question for you. Do do you have any insight, or does Salesforce give you insight into how they measure that customer satisfaction score? Like, you know, how frequently they do it?
3: Yeah, the the folks in San Fran are really brilliant, brilliant people. And, you know, they realized, I think years ago, that, you know, clients that aren't happy don't renew software, (laughs) Yeah. Right. So they also, you know, at the most senior executive levels within Salesforce for years have been talking about how critical this is. I mean, your ACV and your churn is in jeopardy when your clients aren't happy. And, you know, when I was running portfolio companies for the Irish private equity firm as a chief marketing officer, we focused a lot on like net promoter score as a way to go ahead and gauge kind of customer loyalty. Salesforce uses a few different metrics Um, But their focus is very keen, which is like, you know, if you don't have clients that are finding value from the software, it doesn't renew. So, you know, the model that you're building is recurring revenue model and the valuation of the company is based upon the discounted value of the future cash flows. And you have a churn problem that's coming up. You better get ahead of that. And the way you get ahead of that is by making sure that you have partners that are keenly focused on the highest levels of customer satisfaction.
1: I think you pointed to another value of being a channel partner, right? Is that, you know, Salesforce in this instance is bringing, you know, very sophisticated global corporation type thinking on how to measure customer satisfaction, which is, in my experience, something that mid-sized or small professional services firms don't really do on their own very well or don't do it. But it sounds like you did it when you were running all those firms routinely.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Absolutely, and Sarah. our founders, Sarah and Tim Hale. I mean, the cornerstone of the business, like I said, is this idea of you know improving business and improving lives, and making sure that you know the work that we're doing and the services that we're providing to our clients are making things better for them, right? And leading to good outcomes on the customer satisfaction side. So, Sarah and Tim believe this, and you know, founded the company on those sorts of values. So, Brendan, I have one last question
2: for you because I know we're coming to an end here. My sense is the channel. Is saturated. I mean, there's lots of partners or so called partners within the channel. But, you know, we've kind of covered what the existing channel partners could and should do. But if you're a brand new partner, channel partner, or thinking about getting into the channel, what should you be thinking about?
3: Yeah, I would go back to focus and targeting, right? Channel partners that try to go everywhere don't really know who they are and why they exist. So I would I would challenge them to place a few bets, right? To be thoughtful around the places in the market where you think you can win and over-resource those bets versus trying to just sprinkle the chips everywhere on the table. So yeah, for if I was to give counsel to a channel partner that's wanting to get into it or wanting to grow their business, for me, it all goes back to, you know, calibrating your execution by targeting. Focus. It's all about focus.
1: I think that phrase, place a few bets and over-resource those bets, can be applied to any professional services firm on the planet, whether you're in a channel or not. So true. And it's 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 shocking to me how frequently that just doesn't happen, unfortunately. The conversation isn't had, or when the conversation is had, senior leaders aren't totally prepared to answer that question, to say, well, where where are we going to place our bets? Mm-hmm. All right. So, in the interest of moving to wrap up, you know, Jeff, you, you put a cliffhanger out there about this bike shop. I threw it out there too, and, and it was more just out of curiosity. So, so let's get into this, man. So, what, what's going on here? So, so, Brendan ran a highly successful bike shop, I'm guessing. I don't know much about it other than seeing it on your LinkedIn profile. So, you have to tell me what's, what's the backstory, guys. Yeah.
3: The backstory is one of my closest and dearest friends in the world was one of my roommates in college. And years ago, back in 2010, he engaged me on a flight in stupidity about buying a, re, a local bike shop chain in Chicago called Higher Gear. So we did our due diligence on it. And we decided to go ahead and acquire it. We actually owned and operated it for eight years very successfully. So a lot of fun. Like Jeff said at the start, it got me into cycling. I wasn't much of a cyclist prior to that, although I had some interest in high school. I introduced it to my son, and he actually is you know studying over in Belgium and doing cycling throughout Europe. Uh, and races right. and competes over there. My wife helped run the business. My business partner, also college roommate, his wife was very involved and engaged in helping grow the business, especially around women cycling and some of the philanthropic interests that we had. So yeah, so they, that was my, my flight of stupidity based upon the motivations of one of my dearest friends in the world.
2: And what is your dear friend's name? Todd Ricketts. Does that name mean anything to you, Jason? No. That family owns the Cubs. Oh. And Brendan,
3: the funniest thing is like for, for the, the entire see, eight years,
2: See, see, that's the problem. I have to tolerate, you know, Brendan as a rabid Cubs fan, because you know that I'm a rabid Cardinals fan.
3: Yes, indeed, indeed. So the funniest part about it, Jeff, is like having been a Cardinals fan, you would appreciate the fact that for the eight years that Todd and I were in business together, he wasn't known as the owner of the Cubs. He was known as the guy who owned the bike shops on the North Shore of Chicago. So the Cardinals fans would love that. Like the diminished role of the Cubs in his profile <laughs> was all around his interest in cycling and regional, regional retail cycling.
2: Yeah, I love how that happens. I think that's happening in the Walmart family as well. Mm-hmm. And this is just an indication of the brilliance of the marketing mind of, of Brendan Sullivan, that they have done some really cool things with the Cubs to really unite and energize the Chicago bicycling community. So I'm just giving them a hard time and Mr. Ricketts. <laughs> if the Cubs can't, or if so, the Cardinals can't win it, I'd root for the Cubs. Fair enough. Well,
1: the Cardinals haven't won it in a long time, have they?
3: They are uh, one of the most winning franchises in the history of Major League Baseball. That's so true. you got to respect that. <laughs> That's right. Number two, behind
2: the Yankees. I hate the Yankees more than the Cubs. <laughs> All right. So so before
1: we wrap though, I want to ask one question about that. What is sure. what is one thing you learned from that experience owning a retail bike shop that you bring to the, you know, your your day, every day, you know, working in a professional services firm? I
3: would I would say it was kind of the focus on the coworkers. You know, we really tried to build a retail bike chain that was different from the kind of support. And, you know, growth that we gave to the co-workers in our business. I'm still really close friends with the guys that were managers of the bike shop. They've gone on to do great things. One's, you know, went back to Loyola and did his undergraduate degree and he's, you know, doing digital marketing now. Another guy is doing a, a very successful outside sales rep for a bunch of the different outdoor brands, Thule and others. So the one thing I kind of take is kind of the care and focus that needs to be placed on the coworkers. I stole that from a really dear friend of mine, Michael Krasny, who is the founder of CDW. He shared with me very long, a long time ago and embedded into my being. If you look after the coworkers, everything else is taken care of. So build a coworker centric culture, you know, give a damn about your people, make sure they're really supported, build your stars, don't buy your stars, right? And The care that they give to the clients goes off the charts
1: well this was a pleasure i appreciate you taking the time to talk us through the channel that it turns out is not espn so jeez where was i no excuse me it was it was great really appreciated your time
3: no happy to give it thanks jeff thanks jason great to talk to you guys yeah you too thanks brandon